So <laughs> I've either had a whole lot of coffee or I'm standing in front of a bunch of people. <clears throat> um, welcome. Welcome to the worship of our Lord. Today we're in Psalm 42, and I should mention uh, that before I begin, sometimes I get stuck on a word, and uh, a particular word, and when I do, I use it over and over again. I use it so much it gets embarrassing. So I want you to know that I've worked really hard today not to use this particular word in the sermon, but I might have used it once. So if you're younger, or if you have a hard time paying attention, just listen for this one word. And if you hear it, then go home and ask someone why Mr. Rist used the word paradox. Oh, I love that word. Psalm 42. Let's read the Lord's word. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you down, cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we have come this morning to sit under your word and to be filled by your word. So this morning, humble us. Humble us so that we can see your face, and so that as we see your face, your joy might fill us, and as your joy fills us, that we might bring you our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Day after day, we stuck, nor breath, nor motion. As idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Water, water, everywhere. And all the boards did shrink. Water, water, everywhere. Nor any drop to drink. 
The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. When we were first married, Phoebe and I lived in Egypt, and at some point we were invited to go to Israel with the youth of our church. Living in the land of mud and sand and heat and mud and sand, we thought it would be wonderful and refreshing to visit the Holy Land. We went, and yes, we have wonderful memories. Refreshing? Hmm. It was summertime, and we traveled through the Negev Desert to get there. Once there, we visited the Dead Sea. There's a reason it's called the Dead Sea. It's a vast body of lifeless water encrusted by minerals and salt in the middle of a wasteland. No birds, no animals, no life. Well, except tourists. The breeze that blew was heavy, laden with salt and dust and heat. And when you went in the water, like tourists do, everything burned. Everything. From there, we went to Masada, rich in history, but a mountain of rock and dirt. And on top of it, a plateau of rock and dirt. And when you look out from the top of it, sweating, you can see for miles and miles around, miles and miles of rock and dirt. And so we traveled there on those rock-strewn, colorless roads until as we rounded a bend in the distance, there was a spot of green, a spot of color. Of all the view in this holy land, our, our eyes were transfixed on that spot. It was summer. And in summer, the rains do not come, and the earth seems to die. The pools of water stagnate and dry up. The wadis are just dry cracks in the earth. The few streams that did exist could almost not be found. And the rivers that originate in the mountains quickly lose their source of water. And then there was that spot. The oasis Jericho, with its springs of water and the colors of life abounding all about it, we wanted that. It's in the midst of this land that the Lord gives us this psalm. Beyond geography, there is not much we know regarding the context of this psalm. Although it's not stated, many think it was written by David, either as Saul was pursuing him or as Absalom was pursuing him. The language in places echoes psalms that were written by David. Alternatively, some think, as the heading indicates, it is of the sons of Korah, those called to minister in the house of God. Some of them most certainly would have accompanied David as he fled from Jerusalem. Perhaps this psalm is a part of their experience. Either way, there's a few things we do know. The writer has enemies, is in exile, and was a leader in God's house. This psalm was written in pain. God inspired these words. And God received these words into his presence through the songs of worship. And God preserved them in the canon of scripture so that, as Paul would write in Romans, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. Hang on to that hope. We'll see it again. The psalm itself does not seem to follow any poetic pattern. 
There doesn't seem to seem to be any linear thought lines where we would expect the chiastic, we get the chaotic. It is a whirlwind throughout with conflicting thoughts and emotions, deep bonds and deep brokenness, desperation and hope, a mirror upon the place in which the author finds himself. Having spent who knows how many long hours staring at a blank page and calling it sermon prep, I shared these thoughts with my wife, who thought for a moment and then said, it sounds like a journal. Why, yes. Yes, it does. All of a sudden, this chaos made sense. Private thoughts and emotions just spill out onto the page. That is a part of what so attracts us to these psalms. Emotions like ours. Chaos like ours that God anoints to his glory. And when God is glorified, Christ is magnified. Out of chaos, Christ is magnified. Yes. Today, I pray that our Lord Jesus leads this, leads us from this chaos to Christ. Perhaps that is what led Derek Kinder, a British Old Testament scholar, to identify this psalm as the most sadly beautiful in the Psalter. Thank God for thirst. That is not a normal thought. Thirst usually reminds us of dehydration, exertion, desperation, need. And yet, it is his goodness that has given us thirst. Without water, our bodies start an imperceptible, decaying path, which leads to death. So, God gave us osmoreceptors and plasma osmolity and arterial baroreceptors so that we become thirsty and drink. We can't imagine life without thirst. So much so that it is generally known that in life, if you aren't thirsty, you might be dead. Verse 1, as the, peer, as the deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And so we are transported to the place where this soul dwells. The dry, barren, hostile landscape where there is no respite. Where you look for miles, but you find no relief. This metaphor of the deer is no thirsty Bambi in the lush scenery of our imaginations. Known to all who inhabited this region, this is a hunted, desperate animal whose body heaves with exhaustion, whose nostrils flare wildly to sense water, whose pants echo out in a shrill bleat. The wadis are dry. The pools are dry. The streams are dry. The dust is dry. My soul thirsts. My soul aches for God. Some have called this place the dark night of the soul, the valley of the shadow of death. 
we are not strangers to this place. We never have been. From the moment we left his presence in the garden, we have walked in a foreign land, through darkness, through valleys, away from him. Sometimes we can articulate why we are in such a place, and sometimes our emotions overwhelm our words. One thing we know, however, is that in such a place, our hearts ache and our tears become our food. I watched this past week as one of my brothers shed just those tears. Over this past year, we have watched a number of our brothers and sisters shed just those tears. Sometimes we just stuff those tears Sometimes we hold them close. Sometimes we pass judgment as if they were wrong or just shouldn't be. Sometimes we avoid God because our thoughts don't feel so godly. Sometimes we get angry at God. Sometimes we just move on. Praise God, the writer lets us in to see his tears. Thank you, God, for honoring them by bringing them into your house today. And so through tears, the chaos becomes questions. When, verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? This can be translated as, when can I get to see the face of God? The psalmist knew that the presence of God is the blessing of God as God makes his face to shine upon you. This has been a long night of the soul, a darkness in which nothing could be viewed in the light of the face of God. Where is your God? Verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me continually, where is your God? Over and over and over. I am overwhelmed by the world around me that taunts me, confronts me, belittles me, mocks me, mocks you. How can you say there is a God? They jeer. Just look at your life. Look at your brokenness. Death rains down from heaven above. Evil dances all around you. You used to stand at the head of the processions in the place of worship with joy on your face, and now you're in exile. Your own hate you. Now you run, and now you weep. Open your eyes. Nothing about this world you inhabit testifies of your God. And the psalmist replies, I don't know how long I can go on like this, verse 10. These things do not just hurt, Lord. They are as deadly wounds to my bones. What have you done, God? Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and all your waves have gone over me. My heart and my flesh, they flail as my feet have no footing, as I am swept and tossed and submerged, I am drowning as your waterspouts unleash over me, as your waves crash over me. There is no up, there is no down. I cannot breathe. Is this called 
providence? Is this your mercy? Is this your kindness? What are you doing, God? Why am I in such grief? Why have you forgotten me, God? Verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Grief, as you all know, grief is such that no matter what we know to be true about God, God is my rock. Grief speaks louder. Why have you forgotten me? The psalmist takes us behind the tears into the aching hard places of his soul. We have those places too. Do you allow others into those places? I know I have had struggles with that. Sometimes I don't know how to form my feelings into words. Sometimes I don't trust my feelings. A lot of times I don't trust others with them. Sometimes I don't trust God with them. Just a note. The evil one loves that. He loves when we are alone and isolated. To paraphrase Calvin, it serves his purpose, for it is his workshop in which to forge a thousand methods of despair. The beauty here is that the psalmist allows God into the hard places. He trusts him with them. In those places, God moves by answering the questions of when and where and what and why with who. Each time the writer entrusts, there's a little more light, a little more air, a little more water. So we watch as this divine thirst leads the psalmist to the graces of faith. The place where he sets his eye on the Lord. He remembers, he prays, he hopes. In thirst, he sets his eyes on the Lord. Look at verse 1. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Again, what a gift of God this thirst is. He had to have Elohim, the mighty one. It was the God who created him, who formed Israel, who formed him. Going through deep waters is common to man. And as such, man hungers for what will satisfy him, help him, get him through. So he desires, he wants, he thirsts. And the kingdom of this world presents everything possible to appease, to appeal, appeal to satisfy, to distract. Love, companionship, wealth. Community, satisfaction, acceptance, knowledge, approval, honor. The end is listless, list, endless. The list is endless. Good things, even. But in matters of the soul, these good substitutes are like salt water. This thirst was for his God, the fountain of living water. And in particular, a thirst that he might See Elohim. In verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? Or when shall I see 
the face of God. It's a thirst we've all had since the garden. Nothing will satisfy until we see him. Reminds us of the restoration of Job when he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. As Job knew, all the saint, as in as all the saints knew, in the face of God, our souls are at rest. As Pastor Dave put it a few weeks back, quoting the novelist Christopher Marley, I had a million questions to ask God, but when I met him, they all fled my mind. It didn't seem to matter. The grace of faith leads us to the face of God, a place where we abound. In this grace, the questions fall away because they are answered in the who. In thirst, he remembers. Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession of the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. For the psalmist, the house of God was the presence of God, the place where he dwelt with his people. How precious these memories were to him as he remembered the sanctuary of God with the people of God under the word of God, surrounded by the praise of God, covered in the glory of God, flooded in the joy of God. What a taste of the kingdom of God he had there. This grace of faith takes him to his roots, the foundations of his faith. God's house. questions fall away because they are answered in the who. In his thirst, he prays. Verse 8. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. In the midst of these questions, the psalmist identifies only these particular words as a prayer, the place where God has invited us to himself. It echoes the weeping prophet in Lamentations. He has made, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. When you hide God in your heart through his word, you know God. When you know God, you know his character, his covenant, his irrevocable commitment. And so it is to the God you know that your soul speaks to the Lord God Almighty, Elohim, and listen to his words, who commands the armies of his steadfast love to surround you, to cover you, to hold you, to defend you, to encamp around you day and night, and nothing, nothing, nothing can assail for the armies. They are the armies of Elohim. It's prayer, that great grace of faith. In it, the questions fall away because they're answered in the who. And finally, in this, in his thirst, he hopes. Now, if you look in your Bibles, you will notice that 
The next chapter, Psalm 43, has no heading. The voice in this chapter does seem to change from 42, and there seems to be a structure about it that 42 does not have. Even so, there are many who think that chapter 43 is a continuance or part of 42. I'm not qualified to add my voice to that discussion, but between you and me, I think 43 is connected to 42. And I think so because of this last great grace of hope. Look at 42.5, 42.11, and 43.5. They are exactly alike. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. What we know, what we really know, is that if something from our triune God is said three times, we are really, really, really to pay attention because it's of first importance. Hope in God. I have things to share with you on this, but first I came across the writings of the Puritan author John Owen on hope, and I was moved. I was so moved that I want to quote him because he seems to have captured the heart of God for us today. So this is John Owen. Buckle up. Hope is a glorious grace whereunto blessed effects are ascribed in the scripture and an effectual operation unto the supportment and consolation of believers. By it, we are purified, sanctified, and saved. And to sum up the whole of its excellency and efficacy, it is a principal way of the working of Christ as an inhabiting in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Where Christ evidenceth his presence with us, he gives us an infallible hope of his glory. He gives us an assured pledge of it and worketh our souls into an expectation of it. Hope, in general, is but an uncertain expectation of a future good which we desire. But as it is a gospel grace, all uncertainty is removed from it, which would hinder us from the advantage intended in it. It is an earnest expectation proceeding from faith, trust, and confidence, accompanied with longing desires of enjoyment. From a, from a mistake of its nature, it is that few Christians labor after it, exercise themselves unto it, or have the benefit of it. For to live by hope, they suppose, infers a state not only beneath the life of faith and assurance in believing, but also exclusive of them. They think to hope to be saved is a condition of men who have no grounds of faith or assurance. But this, but this is to turn a blessed fruit of the Spirit into a common affection of nature. Gospel hope is a fruit of faith, trust, and confidence. Yea, the height of the actings of all grace issues in a well-grounded hope, nor can it rise any higher. Now, the reason why men have no more use of it, no more benefit by this excellent grace is because they do not abide in thoughts and contemplations of the things hoped for. The special object of hope is eternal glory. The peculiar use of it is to support, comfort, and refresh the soul in all trials under all weariness 
and all despondencies. From the grace and duty of being spiritually minded by John Owen. Now abide faith, hope, and love. Hope from God is that settled conviction. It is that settled conviction of the future that gives shape and meaning to our lives today. And not just to our lives in general, but to our love and to our faith and to everything we've been born again into. What a privileged life, lives we have as believers. All around the world, in any place and in any religion, you can find faith and love, but not gift of settled conviction. So it is curious that we are so eager to talk about and practice love and faith as it should be, but hope, well, we don't find that on our lips much. And to tell the truth, we don't speak it into our lives much. And yet it is this very hope that makes our faith and love to flourish. Can you imagine what faith and love would look like without hope? Oh, I believe in God. The end. Oh, yes, I love well because God loved me. The end. Our love would not grow. And our faith would become mechanical. But in hope, when you love, you love unto God. And when you believe, you believe unto God. In hope, your souls flourish with a longing and expectation that all of this is by our God and for our God, whom someday we will see face to face. Perhaps we can say that hope is how our love and faith find attachment. And from that attachment, hope bids our lives out of the joy set before us. It is no wonder then that the writer of the Hebrews would call this hope the anchor of our souls. For this sermon, I quickly scanned God's word for his promises of hope, something I would highly recommend. When you do that, you quickly find out from beginning to end and everywhere in between. His word overflows with hope. And he will bruise your head. In your offspring will all the nations of the earth be blessed. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the earth will be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And he will swallow up death forever. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, to give you a future and a hope. Because I live, you also will live I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I has not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. For now we see in a, dim, a mirror dimly but then face to face. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. On and on and on it goes. 
These are the rich promises of Elohim, our Father. And they are for us. So after all the questions and accusations and tears and pain and despair, after the pouring out of emotion, the psalmist tells us three times that there is a time to speak. To speak into our souls. Verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The time has come to speak this great grace of faith, hope, into our souls. For in hope, the questions fall away. And we see Jesus. Hope is not an idea, it's not a theology, it's not a work. We don't put it on or take it up. Hope dwells in the promises of God. And what do we know? We know that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. The hope that the psalmist calls upon, seen by him through signs and symbols, through ceremony, through sacrifices, the hope is a hope we see. For this hope is Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory. In his great thirst, the psalmist would reach for hope, and the God of hope would answer. He would answer him as one who would leave the glory that was his, to be born into a dry and barren land who would spend his days knowing hunger and heat with no place to lay his head, a man of suffering upon whom the waters rage, who tasted tears and longed to see his father, who longed to be in his father's house, one who bore the psalmist's griefs and sorrows, one upon whom it was the will of God to crush him, to crush him to grief, one who was despised and rejected, one mocked, by his enemies, one who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One upon whom God had turned his face away. One upon whom with open lashes on his back and blood pouring down upon his face with gaping wounds in his hands and his feet and his side cried out, I am thirsty. the psalmist would end my salvation and my God and hope arose the cry erupts from Genesis to Revelation it erupts from the pages of this psalm it erupts from kingdoms and powers from tongues from tribes from heaven and earth from nations it erupts from martyrs and erupts from the grave it erupts from the throne and the living creatures from the elders and the angels numbering myriads and myriads hope arose and with one voice all of these cry out he is risen risen ascended glorified reigning with his father the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And when he returns with that strong grip, 
He will bring us home. To a home where faith will become sight, the darkness light, and we will see his face. And the psalmist and all who have this hope will neither hunger nor thirst anymore. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd, and he will guide us to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Truly, beloved, have we not been born again to a living hope? Oh, what a glorious hope. So give us this thirst, we pray. And here is that great paradox. Give us this thirst, we pray, because our thirst leads us to hope. And our hope fills our souls with thirst for the living God. Behold, Psalm 42, journaled by one like us. We all have our stories written in the journals of our lives. How is that writing going? How is it with your souls? How will your story end? Do you want your story to finish well? Then take hold of eternal life, hope in God. Because this glorious grace assures us that someday we will be standing in front of his throne. Remember, we're meeting at the seventh tree on the right. Next to the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of that great city street, and we will see his face. And on that day, Perhaps we will write a new poem, a psalm. And perhaps it will go like this. Water, water, everywhere. Beloved, he is risen. He is risen. It is risen indeed. Stand up. Shout that. Shout it into your lives. Shout it in the morning. Shout it when you go to bed. Shout it to your neighbors. Shout it. He is risen. He is our living hope. Someday, because he is risen, you will see him face to face. Arise. Stand up. Let us pray together that great prayer of faith and love and hope that Jesus taught us. It won't be behind me. So sorry. Come, let us pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.
thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> 